And yet a lot of the meditation methods think that all what they have to do is they have to really evaluate. We're going to get deep insight from this dukkha. And so they practice a dukkha, 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 inspect the dukkha, look at the dukkha, dig it up, pay attention to it, get really involved with it. There is a nugget in there of wisdom someplace if you only get into it. It's almost like a child in a, in a big 55-gallon barrel of horse manure throwing horse turds out saying, yippee, there's got to be a pony in here someplace. Guess what? Ponies are not known to hide in the bottom of a barrel of horse shit. They just don't. Uh, Tyler, today we will uh, be discussing. I should have started. Yeah. So today we'll be discussing the very basic understanding of a teaching of the Buddha called Paticca Samuppada. Paticca Samuppada means dependently originated. And basically what the teaching does is, is that it teaches um, how the mind works. It's basically kind of a, a map to how the mind works. If, uh, so that you can, uh, with the right uh, skills, including this map, begin to understand how the mind itself works. And part of the understanding of how the mind works is, is that the human being lives in that mind. They do not live in reality. That there is a process. And so basically we can talk about it from the perception of uh, this word. Let me use this one word, seeing. Seeing is a form of consciousness. An example is I can see uh, the light, I can see the shapes, I can see the forms. And when I say I see a tree, that's moving away from actually what is seen into what is perceived. And when I say I see what you mean, then that's all a mental construction. So when we live in reality, we live in a reality that we see, but in order to understand that reality, we add our own past experiences to it to come up with an internal representation. That internal representation we can call idea, we can call it a thought, we can call it a, um, uh, in, the, in the Pali, the Buddha calls it um, salayatana, which actually means the internal senses. So we see something with the eye and then to make sense with it, we combine it with data coming up with a salayatana and that is what impacts us. So the real world doesn't impact us and the way that we know that for sure is because in any particular thing that happens out in the real world, two different human beings will have two different reactions to it. Okay. Let me give you some examples of that. A plane crashes. And one guy jumps up and down for joy because it was his enemy that was in the plane. Okay. That's, this is what I'm getting at. 
Another example, a guy is walking down the street, he's dressed in a particular suit or uniform, and two people are having a conversation across the street, and they see this guy over there. <clears throat> Neither one of them knows him personally, but both of them will have a reaction to the suit that he's wearing or the clothes that he's wearing, depending upon what it is. It might be a Gestapo uniform, and people have different reactions to that. It might be a nun's habit. One's a Catholic and the other one was raised in Catholic school and is not a Catholic. And so he hates the nuns outfit. Okay, so this is the whole idea that we have is that we don't live in reality. We live in a constructed reality that's mostly constructed out of past experience. That we recognize that nuns have it from our past. Or the Gestapo uniform, we recognize that from our past. Or it could be, in fact, um, uh, uh, men in black kind of suit with dark glasses and a black suit. And the guy's walking down the street and two people have a different reaction to him. One of them runs to him and the other one runs away from him. So when we understand that no one lives in a real reality, because if we all lived in reality, then we would all have the same views and opinions about everything, which would be real. We would be in, in fact, in, in the reality of it. We don't live in a reality. We live in a constructed reality, and that constructed reality is constructed with a key ingredient. It's called ignorance. We never have enough information to adequately assess a situation. That always things are new. And because of that, the uh, part of the delusion is not the real ignorance, is that we are deluded to think that we know when in fact we don't know. So, so when we hear about ignorance, when we hear like, uh, Buddha were to talk about ignorance, which ignorance would he be referring to? Would he be referring to our own ignorance of thinking that we know things we don't know? Or is it about the, the basics? Actually, the problem is in translation. Of course. <laughs> Using the word ignorance is a problem. The Pali word is ajiva. And that word means not knowing, but it can also mean knowing not. Or knowing wrongly. Mm. Okay. In that regard, we can use two words now to talk about it. One would be the word ignorance, and the other one would be the word delusion. My example is you get up in the middle of the night, you go to the bathroom, you don't turn the lights on because you know your way to the bathroom and on the way to the bathroom, you stub your toe and it hurts. Now, did you stub your toe out of ignorance or did you stub your toe out of delusion? Would that be delusion? Absolutely, it was delusion. Why? Because we thought we could make it to the bathroom without having any trouble and we thought we knew where the furniture was. Ignorance is, is that I know that it might be dangerous. I should turn the light on so I can see where I'm going. But that kind of ignorance is now wise ignorance. So we can say then that there's two kinds of ignorance. There is wise ignorance and foolish ignorance. 
Foolish ignorance is when you know that you're ignorant. And foolish ignorance is when you think you know when in fact you don't. But that's not really ignorance, that's just delusion. All right, and so this is it. Can we change our delusion into ignorance? How do we do that is with investigation. Without the investigation and we think we know we're deluded. If we investigate and we find out, then we know because of the investigation. But if we make an investigation and we still don't know, now that's still wise ignorance because we've done the investigation and we still don't know. And we can come to the conclusion, I don't know, rather than making up something which is what we do with deliver with um, delusion. So this is where we're looking at it. We can look at it from um, delusional and learn something or we can lose the um, the more simplified word actually is almost a kindness to call delusion ignorance. But in fact, the real issue is that it's not uh, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is not greed, ill will, and ignorance. It's greed, ill will, and delusion. Okay. Because the greed that we have is delusional greed. We think we were, uh, we greed in the, as an example, when we want something really badly, the delusion is, is that I need it. The delusion is, is that I'm not whole. The delusion is I'm not good enough. The delusion is I will be better if I get what I want. I will feel better, etc. like that. That's delusional. Because getting what one's want does not make one feel better. Once you get what you want, now you've got to protect it. Other people want it too, and they're going to try to take it with from you. Or time will rust it out. So thieves can come, uh, uh, rot can happen, uh, all kinds of things. And so now that we've got it, we have to keep it. And we will eventually not be able to keep it, and we'll lose it. And when we lose it, we feel bad. So much for the greed and getting what we want and thinking that greed and getting what we, we want is going to make us happy and it doesn't. That's delusional. And the same thing happens with ill will. That we think that, oh, if I go take care of that situation, then I'll be better off. And uh, an example of that is revenge, except that when you take revenge on him, he's going to take revenge on you and there's not going to be any end to the back and the forth of it. And so that's also delusional to think that we can uh, get our way through harming someone or something. A very easy example. <clears throat> Sitting in meditation, the mosquito comes and bites the arm. And now we've got an itching sensation on the arm. 
The delusion is, and it comes instantly, that instant delusion is scratching it, thinking it'll feel better if I scratch it. Guess what? It do, not only does it not feel better by scratching it, but it disrupts the skin around it and makes things worse. That the best thing to do uh, with the mosquito bite in all cases would be to gently put some salve on it, to take care of it, to nurture it rather than clawing at it. I don't like it. So that's an example of delusion there is is not liking the a mosquito bite and making it worse by scratching. Um, that in fact it's it's a national tendency here in Thailand just on, on the side to cut the fingernails very very short so the kids can't scratch. Where in, in northern climates we use fingernails for uh, tools and all kinds of things. We want the fingernails longer, but then th those fingernails will scratch. And that's what we do with them. So, getting back to uh, the point about the Saliatana and the impact, our feelings come from the impact. And to no one knows what the, uh, is in someone else's mind, but we do know behavior. The behavior is an indication of what's in someone's mind, but people can be very good at uh, being deceitful, deflective, uh, non-communicative, and you don't know what's in their mind. But if you investigate and you still don't know, then we can just leave it, well, I'm not sure, rather than making up something. But our culture supports making stuff up. An example of that is the um, uh, the multiple choice quiz. Right? Because they're easy to grade, but it invites the students to guess. They don't know, then they can at least uh, eliminate the ridiculous answers get it down to maybe a choice of one or two, but we're still supposed to guess, okay? Within the process of uh, learning Anapanasati and the process of the Buddha is to leave it into two worlds of not that intermediate guessing, but either you know through direct evaluation, contemplation, and uh, investigation, inspection, or you don't because you have done that investigation, that inspection, that evaluation, and have not come up to a conclusion, therefore you don't know. But our society loves that in-between place. In fact, they don't like not knowing. So they'll make something up. Humans are really good at making stuff up to answer questions that they don't know the answers to. In fact, that's the entire source. I just gave you the rationale and the source of religion. They didn't know what it was, and so they made something up. And they feel better about what the stories they made up, rather than leaving the mind in a state of not knowing. So this is an important point that we'll talk about later, but let's get into it in, in the sense of the sitting practice. 
So knowing that when you are on your own and alone, no one else knows what's in your mind. Only you know that. And it's then up to you alone to be able to do something about it. This is, in fact, possibly the most important point of the second noble truth that is very rarely, um, let us say, made mention of for the students for their understanding. And that is the cause of suffering is greed, ill will and delusion. And all of that happens within one's own mind. Which means all of your suffering, all of your misery, all of your experience and everything never happens and it's caused by the outside world. It always happens inside the mind. It's not what happens on the outside It's what we do with it. And that what we do with it is almost always based upon our past experience. Which means. I'm using now the word action for the word comma. There is another way of looking at it. When people talk about the law of comma and <clears throat> Buddhism and comma and all of that kind of stuff. We almost always think about it in the sense of Hinduism because that's their that's their thing. That uh, comma is a uh, really um, a Hindu kind of thing. Uh, but most of the people who came to the Buddha uh, from Asia already believed in that comma stuff. <coughs> and we'll talk about um, comma in a more formal way at a later time. But right now I'm looking at comma is merely the actions that you take. Day by day by day, the actions that we do. And those day by day actions that we do are almost the same actions that we have been doing in the past. Once we start acting in a certain way, we tend to continue to act in that that same way. Which means now we're talking about not action, but we're talking about reaction. Not immediate action reaction but a matter of action, reaction, 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 reaction. And that's what's going on. The new stimulus is rare. But the actions are repeated over and over again in the mind. We react to things. This is what we mean by comma. Is it's the habit patterns of the mind. It's the actions and the results and the actions and the results that we build up over time that can also be called habit. And uh, when we operate like that, it tends to take us off in a certain direction that um, give um, the delusion of destiny, providence, predestination. But basically, all it's really saying is, um, in effect, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. In other words, the swordsman's destiny is to die by the sword. But the swordsman can, in fact, put down his sword and stop living by the sword. And then the likelihood of him dying by the sword is reduced. 
So if we look at it like this, then that means that we have a choice. That that swordsman can put down his his sword, which means now with choices we can respond. But without choices, we merely react. That makes sense to you. If we have choices, how are we going to have choices? We're going to have choices because of the investigation. And when we start investigating, we can have uh, and see that we've got uh, different possibilities here that we can begin to make some choices that we didn't have before when we were stuck in our destiny. In other words, when we're just reacting to our habits, then those habits are rolling in a certain direction is going to continue in that direction. This is what uh, is um, part of Newton's laws of thermodynamics in the sense of inertia, inertia. Once something gets going in a certain direction, it's going to continue to go off in that direction. So we're going to have to take some effort, some right effort to nudge the direction that our mind is normally traveling in. This is a big point that we have to start making some changes. And this is where the Eightfold Noble Path comes in. This is a method to make changes in the mind. This is right view, right action, right, uh, excuse me, uh, right effort, right sati, and right attitude. So that we can use these tools to make these changes in the mind <clears throat> so that we can live a life that is not bound by the destiny that we thought it was. That we have actually a new way to do. Now, <clears throat> we can also say it this way. This is my life. This is the way I like to say it. And that is, is that uh, each individual one of us has been spending their whole life talking themselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. The question is, how good can you feel? The question is, how do you want to feel? This is a good question to ask. How do you want to feel? Because most people don't even think about how they want to feel. They just feel the way that they feel because of their habits. And so if they had a reaction to something last time, then that same thing kind of thing happens again. They're more than likely to respond to it or react to it in the same way. But there is a, uh, a possibility that they don't, and that is the possibility that they can develop some skills. The skill then is not is to not behave the way that we, la we behaved last time, that we can behave in a new way instead. And so these are why we call these skills to be developed, the skill of right view and the skill of sati, the skill of right effort and the skill of right attitude. And if we're going to develop these skills with Anapanasati. And so the sequence of event that happens in the mind um, 
it's important to talk about the sequence of events that happen in the mind is a natural thing as opposed to Anapanasati is normally taught in an organized way according to the Satipatthana where you have the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects. But it's not possible for you to practice that way. The way that you would think that I just mentioned that the guy can bring his body into the meditation and his feelings, his mind, and his mind objects can stay in bed and he can do a 10-day retreat with body only. But that's not possible. We got to take the whole show in there and work with the whole show in a natural kind of way. And then a lot of people try to practice Anapanasati that way. In fact, the Gawanka method is set up that they do three, three days of step one and then the next seven days is step three and that's all they do. That's the entire Gawanka course. There's nothing more to it than that. I know because I did more than 30 of them. So, um, the right way of looking at Anapanasati is according to how the mind works, especially if it were working correctly. And so, with right uh, sati, the wake up then is to do the investigation. The investigation then would be step nine of experiencing the mind, understanding the mind, knowing the mind, looking at what the mind is doing. And at that particular point in time, uh, step 10 of Anapanasati is then to gladden the mind. Now, what that means, the way that it's stated, is actually <clears throat> dealt with in depth in other suttas. And that is um, that that gladdening the mind means that we're going to take unwholesome thoughts, the kind of thoughts that we normally have, and evaluate them to see whether that thought is really worth having right now. Is this the best kind of thought that I could have, or is this just an ordinary or a junk thought, or just um, uh, thoughts of harm and ill will and greed and all of that? So we begin to look at the thoughts that we have with the idea that we're going to change the mind by gladdening the mind, we're going to lift it up. We're going to take it out of the unwholesome and put it into really wholesome states. And so this is one's right effort. One's right effort is to change what's in the mind, to change the mind, to change uh, the thoughts, to change the focus, to gladden the mind, and basically to talk yourself into feeling good. You've been talking yourself into feeling bad with all of these unwholesome and negative thoughts your whole life. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. This is the practice of Anapanasati, is to talk oneself into feeling good. And so we use right effort in two major ways here. One right effort is to make sure that we're breathing well, long, deep in-breaths, natural, relaxed. Some students will say, after I do that about 20 minutes, I get really tired. The answer is, well, you're working a little bit too hard then. And there's also the possibility that people have not been breathing well their whole lives. And so starting to breathe well is a new kind of exercise. So you could experience maybe a little bit of tiredness. That's okay. But just make sure that it's 
we were just starting to talk about one's right effort for breathing. One's right effort for breathing is to breathe long, but not too long, just a little bit of effort, just to make sure that the breath is long and deep, but easy going because we're looking for relaxation. So we're not looking for a heavy breathing. We're looking for a very light, easy, but long, deep breath. So with that long, deep breath, we relax the body and we're relaxing the mind. And the relaxation in the mind means that we're coming out of all the turmoil of all the thoughts that we have of basically like having something on your mind. Well, what we're going to have on our mind is something very lightweight, something easy. Mm. Like everything is all right, no place to go, no problems, no worries. These are thoughts of gladdening the mind. And we want to keep gladdening the mind this way over and over and over again, because what are our options? To go back into the ordinary junk thoughts. Now, some students will ask me, well, what's the difference then between an unwholesome and a wholesome thought? Just as we started talking about it in this, that that's actually up to the individual student to figure out for himself what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. There are some general guidelines that we can go on, but basically the investigation will then be what we use as our determination so that as the skill uh, improves, when our investigation improves, what that means is that our discernment about what is wholesome and what is not wholesome grows. We get very good at it. But there are some indications that we can use about what is wholesome thought and what is not wholesome thought. An example is the kinds of things we know are unwholesome are things that don't exist. Because if we have thoughts and, and beliefs and, and uh, whatnot of things that don't exist, then that means that we're pretty far from reality. One of the definitions we can have from uh, uh, all of this is that the way we're thinking and the process of thinking and the world that we create within the mind, the closer it is to actual real reality, the less likely we are to suffer. And the further our thinking process, our mental reality on the inside is away from and different from actual real reality, then the more likely we are to suffer more likely we are to be dissatisfied with things. If that's the case, then that means that we want to investigate with the idea that we're going to be able to see things more clearly and get closer to reality. And we're no longer interested in making stuff up. That we get out of making stuff up. But you see, in our society, we have been taught to make stuff up. Entrepreneurs are miserable people because they make stuff up in their mind and then they can't do it. 
How many business startups fail? Do you know that 90% of all new restaurants fail in six months? All right, so that what that means is that all, all of our ideas and all of our wants and all of our desires generally wind up as failures. So the less we want, the better off we are. And so you could actually see then that the word dukkha or dissatisfaction has a complementary or an opposite word to it that is called sukha. Dukkha and sukha are opposites. They're opposites in the Thai language, in dukkha and sukha. They're opposites in the Pali, dukkha, sukha, and they're also opposites in the Gujarati language, dukkhi and sukhi. These are opposite words, and if the Buddhist teaching is uh, the end of dukkha, then that means that we're going from dukkha to sukha. Well, naturally, then you would expect sukha to be one of the items on the list of Anapanasati skills. And yes, it is. We need to practice sukha. So what is this definition of sukha is that it uh, it has safety, security, contentment and satisfaction. Those are the four attributes of sukha. Safety, security, comfort, and uh, satisfaction. So this is actually a skill to be developed. And we should spend time thinking about getting into the mind and the feelings into a state of sukha. Now, here's a way of looking at it. We are actually taking time and effort, the right effort, to change the way we breathe. We're taking the right effort to change the body postures. One of the ways that we're changing the body postures is by learning to hold the body still. That the body doesn't just shake all over the place, that we keep it um, uh, like in meditation. Keep your arms closed, your eyes closed, your legs crossed, and you just sit still. But we can learn to practice that any time of the day. Just sitting still. Now. Uh, with the body, we can train the body, but in order to train the body to breathe and to sit still and to be at rest and at peace, that means that we've got to train the mind to remember to do that. In other words, if you're breathing out long and breathing in long, intentionally breathing out long and breathing in long, both the body and the mind are working. They're working together. So that the mind is causing the body to breathe long. And the so in fact, what's happening is the student is controlling both the breathing and the mind. In order to control the breathing, he also is controlling the mind. Isn't that interesting? So now we've got two of them going. And by gladdening the mind, we're now beginning to work with the feelings. So that we can literally talk ourselves into feeling good. We were able to do that by uh, controlling the feelings, uh, controlling the body by learning to breathe and to learn to relax and to hold the body still. We can also um, uh, change the thoughts that we're having from thoughts about the past and thoughts about the future 
into thoughts about right now and what we're doing. So this is the practice of Anapanasati is to remember Sati, to investigate the mind and to look at what the mind is doing and then change that to something more wholesome. So we're always looking for going with the mind into a wholesome state to gladden the mind, to brighten it up. In fact, gladdening the mind is a very wholesome thing to having words like everything's okay. Everything is fine. There's not a problem, no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. These are wholesome thoughts. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that because I a big shift in my practice has come recently by um, when I think of my sensations as like getting to know a friend. Mm -hmm. it, it makes it much, it's actually dramatically changes the, the whole experience of like feeling discomfort or um, previously negative sensations. And so it's, that's interesting to hear you say that. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, so the gladdening of the mind then is the key ingredient that is often missing in most meditations. The noting meditation, for instance, with the Mahasi or the choiceless awareness. In fact, the choiceless awareness crowd is the worst of all because they uh, are choicelessly staying stuck in hindrances. They are choicelessly just doing what they've always been doing. Except that now they're adding awareness to it, which means that now they have to deal with their dukkha at a different level than they used to. And so more than likely, they're going to be spiraling down because they're getting in touch with the dukkha without actually doing anything to remove it. And in fact, there is a usefulness for choiceless awareness, and that would be to, um, actually a good way of talking about it would be, uh, have you ever heard of the, the AA prayer? It's normally known as the AA prayer. Uh, Right. And here's the point about the choices awareness is, is that they don't know the difference. Mm. Between what they can change and what they can't change. You want to be choicelessly aware about the things that you can't change like the outside world. But you do want to make some choices to make some changes to the things that you can change. One's own mind. And so this is the way that we want to practice is that we're actually going to do it with the intention of making some changes. Because your only option is to continue to react. Which means take the same actions over and over again and all the bad feelings that are associated with them. But now we're going to begin to change because we have choices now. And always the choice would be dukkha or sukha. Which are you going to choose? 
You're going to choose to be dissatisfied or you're going to choose to be satisfied. Now, this satisfaction, that sukha, that's an amazing state. To be in a state of satisfaction means basically that you're not afraid of anything. If you're afraid of something, then you're not satisfied with it. But if you're satisfied with it, then you're not afraid of it. Some people think that, in fact, that what their job is with meditation or whatnot is to become enlightened. But they don't even know what that is. That, in fact, the word enlightenment is part of Western delusional systems. They've made it magical. They put it way high up there. That, in fact, uh, the Buddha has come to the West as a religion rather than as a, a practical means of getting the mind in a state of satisfaction. But this word enlightenment then is uh, way, way up there. They put Jesus and Buddha and God and enlightenment and all that stuff way out of reach. Making it magical to where really enlightenment in a practical level would be just being in a state of satisfaction. And then somebody will say, oh, no, enlightenment is not satisfaction and satisfaction is not enlightenment. That you could satisfaction is what you want to do, but enlightenment is what you're going to get eventually someday. Well, let's look at this. And that is, is that if I'm completely satisfied right now, if I'm completely satisfied, then why should I want anything else like enlightenment? And if enlightenment is not satisfaction, then if I'm enlightened, that means I'm not satisfied. That still sounds like dukkha. So a better way of looking at all of this is that we're not looking for enlightenment at all because we don't even know what that word means. And in fact, it's not even a Buddhist term, it's a Western term. So let's not look for enlightenment. Let's look instead for satisfaction. And part of that satisfaction is also to be awake to the satisfaction that we know we're satisfied. And so this is the first goal that we can practice with. This is where you want to practice is to remember to change what your thoughts are. So that you can uh, gladden the mind and by gladdening the mind and taking deep breaths, we begin then to develop the feeling of sukha. Many ways we can do that. An example is, is that we can look around the room and say, you know, there's no alligators, there's no crocodiles. There's no vultures on your uh, uh, couch. There's no mafia bosses ringing you on the phone. The SWAT team is not breaking in. In other words, everything that's happening right now is completely safe. And we need to tell ourselves that things are safe right now. There's no reason to feel afraid. We need to nourish ourselves that way. But if we have critical thinking, then we can say, oh, but that can go wrong and this can go wrong. And there's a hole over there. Snakes can crawl in. And that, for that door needs to be fortified because the SWAT team may try to break it down. 
And you hear what happens with critical thinking then is that it brings up fear. That in fact, another way of thinking about it is, is that the critical thinking that is so important and well taught in the West is actually just another definition of the second noble truth. It's critical thinking. Why do I say that? Well, if we look at the original part about um, the second noble truth, it's greed and ill will. Well, critical thinking means I'm criticizing this. This is better than that. This is good. This is better. That's best. And we're doing all these comparisons and all of these judgments. That's what critical thinking is built into. It's not real investigation. It's being critical. And because of that criticism, we're absolutely putting in false dichotomies about what's better and what's best because we choose the criteria to make that decision. Okay, there's all, in other words, one thing is not necessarily better than others. It depends upon what value system you're using to judge it. And when we recognize that I am using value systems, then I can stop using the value systems and start just seeing things the way they are without judging them. This is what we mean now in coming out of critical thinking into nurturing thinking. The nurturing kind of thinking is everything's okay, everything's fine, there's no problems, no worries, and we can start to have the kind of thinking then that leads us into being in a really good, comfortable state, which then would be one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. This is the actual practice that noting method misses, which means then that uh, uh, there's no possibility in this method of a dark night of the soul or uh, no possibility of misery, disgust, despair, because when those thoughts come in, we recognize them as hindrances and we just throw them out. And we come back into a state of everything's okay, everything's fine, no problems and no worries. This is the correct way of practicing Anapanasati, which means now that the kind of thinking process that we're doing is not using so much of the old to figure out what's happening now. But we're using more uh, modern information that we got as an adult, or that we've gotten recently, because our recent information is much more likely to be useful, valuable, and wholesome, rather than the really old stuff, especially the kind of choices and decisions we made when we were little kids. When we were little kids, we were obviously victims. Now you're no longer a victim, except when it's you're a victim in your own mind. But you're not a victim in your own mind when you're a winner in your own mind. Which is the fourth one, the Samasankapa, when right view, right sati, and right effort run and circle around each other, improving each other, then uh, right attitude comes in. That attitude of, I can do this. I can do this. No matter how obstructed my mind gets, no matter how many alligators I can dream up, 
I can throw all those alligators out and come to a nice, steady, easy place. That's all there is to it. Just changing what's in the mind from unwholesome to wholesome. This is the major teaching of the Buddha that is often missed in Western Buddhism, is that uh, ability to change the kind of thoughts that we have and the kind of feelings that we have. So that you can feel the way that you want to because you can talk yourself into it. But in order to talk yourself into feeling good, you got to remember to stop talking yourself into feeling bad. <laughs> and so this is the basic practice. And so I would recommend that we practice this often throughout the day. Now, many meditation systems talk about uh, meditating for one long session. Starting out at 20 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, maybe two hours, and now we're getting really good at sitting. Well, even if somebody sits for an hour, let us say a very productive hour a day, that still means that he's got one hour of no hindrances followed by 23 hours of hindrances plus 20 years of history of hindrances, which is going to lose that or win that battle. One hour of sati and 23 hours of dukkha. <laughs> no, we need to change the tables on that. And so sitting for long periods of time is not the most valuable thing. But what would be valuable is, is to do it often. To remember to do it often. But it's not about just sitting uh, or retreat or something, but we also have to spend enough time to be able to get ourselves into a really good state. That's the whole point of it. How long does it take you to get yourself into a really, really good state intentionally? Some people might take 20 minutes. Some people might take 10 minutes. I would recommend that we start with uh, probably 15 so we would do 15 minute sessions or maybe uh, uh 10 minute sessions after you get started with 15 minute sessions and so you can actually do four 15 minute sessions um a day the best time to do it is when you first wake up in the morning as soon as you wake up before you get out of bed that's a good time to pay attention to your posture, to pay attention to the breathing, to let the body just relax and um, have good, wholesome thoughts like today is going to be a really OK day. Everything's going to be OK today. There's not going to be any troubles, no worries, no problems, no hassles. Everything's all right. Got no place to go and nothing to do. And so my life will be a joy today. Even while you're still laying, laying down. Even while you're still laying down, before you ever get out of bed. You can spend 10 or 15 minutes just enjoying being alive. Wow, what a nice feeling this is. And then you can do the same thing when you go to sleep at night. Or let us lay day down in the bed to go to sleep. But most people go uh, lay down to go to sleep, actually putting themselves under pressure. Oh, I've got work to do tomorrow. I've got to think about this and that and all of this kind of stuff. 
And, and because of all that kind of thinking, they set themselves up for a lot of dreaming. And the dreaming is not as restful as real deep sleep could be. And so practicing Anapanasati before you go to sleep would be something like, wow, I got no place to go and nothing to do for the next eight hours. I can just lay here and enjoy the night. Wow, this feels so good. And then we can just relax and relax and relax and go off into sleep without a care in the world. And so this is the way to practice it, Anapanasati as you're going to sleep at night. We'll talk more about uh, postures and things like this, but basically the best way to sleep at night is by laying on the side, not on the back and not on the stomach, but either on the left or the right side. So you put yourself in that position whenever you remember throughout the night. Sometimes you'll actually wake up in the middle of the night just to change your posture and you'll know enough about it to roll over to get yourself into a comfortable posture either on your left or your right side. And so we begin to sleep in a wholesome way because we keep remembering to put the body into the correct posture and then the body will eventually take up the habit even while you're asleep, so that you can sleep on your side. It can be trained. I know that most people say, hey, you look at a little kid and like uh, a kid who's nine years old, she shills flops just all over the bed. You don't want to be in the bed with her. You're likely to get a, 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 a heel in your stomach. <laughs> but as an adult, we can begin to monitor and uh, pay attention to what the body is doing, calming the body down and putting it into a posture. And so this is a way of practicing. There's all, you can also practice in more formally in, for a 15-minute session. But the important point is in this 15 minutes that you're going to get yourself into a really, really good, peaceful, comfortable, relaxed, happy state over and over again. And then that Sankapa will grow in the sense of, hey, I could do this. I could do this. I can make myself feel good anytime I want to. So this is the way to practice. Four times a day, six times a day for 10 minutes, something like that. Um, and But the important thing is, is that we have to uh, have the, the view or the opinion. One's right noble view is this technique works and is worthwhile having and that we will build enthusiasm for doing this. We become enthusiastic for doing it in the morning. We become enthusiastic for doing it at night. We become enthusiastic for doing it throughout the day. To keep practicing and keep practicing because we really like the fact that we can get ourselves into a really good state. So this goes back to that teaching that this is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. And yet many, many people with meditation, they struggle with it. They sit too long, they work too hard, they want too much out of it. And because of that, it's not very wholesome for them. But if we look at that point that the Buddha made, that this stuff is good in the beginning. 
That means that we have to practice in a way that we're getting good, valuable fruit, good benefits, good results. And so that's it. Where is your enthusiasm? Have you got it up? Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I think that was like a big way that I wasn't practicing before with noting it became very, very miserable <laughs> for sure at certain points. Um, and and I, I had a question about the Anapanasati because it's a little bit different from how I had been practicing, particularly focusing on your on your breath, um, you know, or intentionally manipulating your breath. And so I was wondering, you know, as other thoughts arise or, or feelings, even if I would consider them maybe wholesome, right? I if I can be totally present with those thoughts or feelings and perceive them maybe in a neutral way, sometimes they may not be strictly the breath, right? Like for example, when I exhale, I could feel I could feel the sensation of my weight on the ground, right? Is that that's I'm assuming that's still fair game in Anapanasati, even though we're focusing on the breath, I can still bring in other sensations as they arise. Actually, Anapanasati, um, in each one of the stages, or maybe we don't use the word stage because that gives the idea that, uh, that they come in a particular order but rather each aspect would be a better way of saying it. Each aspect of Anapanasati is to be done in the way of practicing it to develop it as a skill while we maintain sati of the breathing. Okay, now here's how that goes, that a breath is a certain period of time, short breathing, would be um, or ordinary breathing would be at about 20 breaths a minute. That's a good benchmark. Uh, 20 breaths a minute means that people are breathing uh, in and out in about three seconds. Uh, that's about the practical way that people are normally breathing. And we're going to be slowing that down um, and one way that we could do it would be going to a 442, four on the in breath, four on the out breath, and then two wake, and then four on the in breath, four on the out breath, and then two wake. We could go all the way up practicing that with five and two. Now, at a five and two uh, count, which is basically about one second when you're counting slowly, uh, we're not going to be using a clock, but rather just just counting and playing with the breath. This is a toy to play with. Then at five and two, that's the count of 12. That means we're down to five breaths a minute. That's four times as slow as normal breathing. In fact, a four, four, two is uh, 10, which would mean now we're down to six breaths a minute. So slowing the breathing down gives us an opportunity while we're breathing in an in-breath and in an out-breath, a whole lot of stuff's going to be happening. There's going to be a lot of thoughts going on with an in-breath and an out-breath. And that by, uh, what we mean by sati means is that the sati is with an in-breath, 
and then sati with an outbreath, which means then that we're actually practicing sati twice on every breath. This is this is the uh, uh, the sutra is stated this way because of the power of sati. So we want to then bring sati to to make sure that that breath is long, deep in breath. But while we're taking that long, deep breath, we could do an entire inventory. We can gladden the mind. We can say things like, wow, this is a really good breath. Okay. We can actually feel that this is a really good breath. We can experience sukha in that in-breath. We can also recognize that my thoughts are wholesome thoughts, one after another after another, so I can evaluate them. So basically what we mean then that uh, the things that we're going to be noting are all going to be wholesome things. What is wholesome? One wholesome thought after another, applied and sustained thought. What is wholesome? Sukha. How is my sukha? When my pity, when my attitude gets strong with the wow feeling, wow, we can do this. Wow, everything is really okay. Now that's also a skill to be developed. We'll talk about that later. But it's still something that can be experienced well while we're on the in-breath and on the out-breath in the sense of, wow, this breath really is a good in-breath. And now we've got pity and sukha and uh, uh, gladdening the mind. We've got these things going and we're doing it while we're breathing in. And then we can do it all again while we're breathing out. And so there's actually quite a lot to be paying attention to and a lot going on. Or for a few breaths, we can practice just working on an in-breath with sukha. We can work with fearlessness. Wow, everything is great and there's no dangers as I breathe in. And wow, there's really everything is great and there's no dangers as I breathe out. And so these are the way that we practice. We're looking for wholesome things. Eventually, we'll uh, look at other things like feelings, not just the pity and the sukha, but feelings in general, that feelings are created through perception. And so we begin to look at perception. This is a little bit further beyond than what we're going to do today. But basically what I'm pointing out is, is that when we have the mind in a really wholesome state, then there is a lot to note but it will all be wholesome. And we will not be noting things that are unwholesome because they're not there to be noted. They're not there to be investigated. That's an important point, is, is that we're not going to be dealing with dukkha, we're going to be dealing with sukha now. We're going to be able to see the dukkha so that we can remove it, get out of it, go away from it. And yet a lot of the meditation methods think that all what they have to do is they have to really evaluate. We're going to get deep insight from this dukkha. And so they practice a dukkha, 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 inspect the dukkha, look at the dukkha, dig it up, pay attention to it, get really involved with it. There is a nugget in there of wisdom someplace if you only get into it. It's almost like a child in a, in a big 55-gallon barrel of horse manure Drawing horse turds out, saying, yippee, there's got to be a pony in here someplace. 
Guess what? Ponies are not known to hide in the bottom of a barrel of horse shit. They just don't. And that <laughs> there is not going to be any joy at the bottom of the dukkha. Therefore, we do not need to spend any time with dukkha at all after we recognize it for what it is. Dukkha is dukkha, is unsatisfactory, is unwholesome. Out it goes immediately. So that now we've gotten the mind into a state that's only wholesome. And so now we're going to investigate and only find things to note that are wholesome. And so this is the practice. So you practice like that for a few days and then call me and we'll talk a bit more, but this is the basic place to get started. Sounds good. Sounds great. Well thanks, thanks, well, thanks. Thanks again, as always. I know I always looking forward to seeing you, uh, you next time. OK, well, we'll finish now and we'll talk to you later. All right. I'll see you later. Bye. Bye bye.